I wanted to alert our listeners that we're switching the podcast from a weekly podcast to a bi-weekly podcast. And it starts bi-weekly after the episode that's released on February 4th. After that, it'll be February 18th and then continuing to be bi-weekly. The podcast will still be released on Tuesdays. And we really appreciate your support of the Solar Maverick podcast. Thank you. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick podcast. I would like to thank Schward Consulting for sponsoring this episode. Schward Consulting is a leading solar consulting firm dedicated to design, engineering, and owner's representation in all areas of solar photovoltaics for the commercial, industrial, and utility markets. Thank you again for sponsoring the podcast. If I were to try to get into this industry today, again, if you're trying to tackle the residential market, you either, I think you need to segment and specialize. Hello and welcome to the Solar Maverick podcast, where solar meets entrepreneurship and experience. I'm your host, Benoit Thangen, so let's get into it. Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick podcast. I'm really excited to have David Buckner. He's the president of Solar Energy Systems. Solar Energy Systems is based in Brooklyn, New York, founded in 1998, is the leading integrator of commercial solar electric systems in the Northeast United States, including New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Massachusetts, and Pennsylvania. As a founding member of the company, he's responsible for business development, corporate strategy, and establishing collaborative efforts with cross-industry channel partners. David, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks, Benoit. It's exciting to finally get on this side of the uh, microphone. I've been listening to it over the last year and have loved a lot of it. And congratulations on making it uh, work. The industry seems to be really picking up on it. Yeah, definitely. I appreciate you listening to the podcast and then actually reaching out to me to be interviewed on the podcast. And I think your experience and your perspective, it's going to be an amazing interview. I mean, you've been in the industry for now. It's amazing to me, like 20 years and could provide a lot of unique perspective. And I'm just really excited that you wanted to be on the podcast and you reached out. So thank you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it would be great. I know I briefly talked about solar energy systems. Can you go into more detail about the company and what made you start the company? It was interesting to hear about how you came from a Wall Street gig and was moonlighting and then started at full time once, I think it was the grant or... Yeah, there was just, I guess I should start with. So I got out of college with a finance major from Fordham and I really didn't have a plan on what kind of job I was going to have even whether it was going to be in finance or not. But I stumbled into a government bond brokerage house downtown through some people that actually played basketball at Fordham. And I came through kind of that connection from playing there as well. It was an inter-dealer broker, floor brokering type of operation. Our customers were Lehman and Solomon and Merrill. And it was fun when it was moving and it was boring when it was slow, just kind of waiting for the traders to do their thing. But yeah, I was there for seven years. I met uh, Chris Moustakis there who was running the the whole middle office, doing all the processing of all the trades, billions of dollars a day. And I was tenure note broker. So we saw the move to electronic trading coming. And I just kind of, I was about to be 30. And this would be a good time if I could think of something else to do. And I, I got involved with a friend from Fordham, a guy named Anthony Pereira. We started a company up in 1998 
those first two years were great years because I actually wasn't working in the solar industry. I was just going to the conferences and having fun. <laughs> but uh, yeah, around 2000, we secured a grant from NYSERDA for about a half million dollars. And it was for five bucks a watt, any commercial projects you could sort of get moving in the city. We thought that that was going to be a great thing and quit my job, started bar backing and doing solar. We did all of about $32,000 in revenue over the next 18 months. So wow. <laughs> it, was, it wasn't quite as easy as we thought. Around 2002, I believe it was, LIPA came up with a $6 per watt incentive for up to 10 kilowatts out in Long Island. And we sort of just ran out there and started jumping on people's roofs and doing residential solar. And Anthony and I parted ways late 2002. He was really focused on the, the intricate Battery Park City jobs that uh, he had gotten going, the BIPV stuff. And I was looking to be up on residential roofs at the time. So Chris came on board just before that, and we moved over here to our office that we've been in in Brooklyn since 2003. I would say 2008 or so, we actually got a, a loan from the New York City Investment Fund of a million dollars, wrote a business plan for it, put somebody to sleep in the meeting, I remember, when we were presenting to them, but evidently they didn't mind. And Henry Kravis actually welcomed us into the group at one of their investor uh, deals there. So it's been an interesting ride. At that point, we sort of moved into commercial only, kind of cut off the residential market. And since that time, through largely through the help of one giant customer of ours. We've grown into about a 45-person company. We do self-perform rooftop work and subcontract electrical work. We develop, we work as an EPC or installer. So we play up and down the uh, spectrum there, but we found a niche a little bit, I think, in doing some of these large rooftop projects that we've gotten pretty good at. Definitely. That's a, an amazing story. And I'm sure there's so much within that it was interesting that you talked about how you were doing residential and then decided to transition and stay with commercial industrial. What made you do that? What was the reasoning behind getting away from the residential business and doing commercial industrial? I got out of the residential business before it really became the business that it is today. I felt like residential was just a whole different animal than commercial as far as just your logistics, your coordination, all the soft costs, customer acquisition costs. And I find the same with some of the rooftops in New York City, trying to do 25, 30 kilowatts, and you're going through all the same brain damage that it takes to do a megawatt over in Secaucus. So it's in New Jersey. That's really what drove me away from the residential sector. It was and the fact that we had some really good quality engineers and people that could stand toe to toe with some of the larger guys on these commercial projects that we were trying to get. So it just became more interesting and more fun for us to kind of figure out how to do larger projects and work together as a small team rather than sort of a, the business of residential is not something that I would be good at, I don't think. That's pretty interesting. And do you utility scale as well? Or it's purely like rooftops, ground mounted systems within commercial, industrial or carport? Yeah, it's primarily rooftop. And again, I can throw the name out there. If, if anyone knows who I am, then they probably know that we do a lot of work for Hearts Solar, which is Hearts Mountain. Uh, they have plenty of large rooftops and we've done a lot of installation work and do all of their O&M on those rooftops. 
top. So as far as utility scale stuff, I would consider that more 20 megawatts and up. No, we don't. We haven't played in that arena yet. We have done a handful of ground mounts. The one megawatt plus ground mounts did one in Princeton, actually, which wasn't the easiest place to get something done there. But uh, we are looking at 11 and a half megawatts with a company up near Newburgh, New York. So our bread and butter is still the commercial rooftop. But yeah, we're, we're moving a little bit into the larger ground mount sector as well. Oh, interesting. That's good to know. And I know you mentioned and we talked about how you've done a lot in New York. Can you talk about the challenges of installing solar in the five boroughs when you talk about commercial rooftops? I mean, there's not that many companies from my perspective that really do it and really are established like solar energy systems. Whenever I hear about potentially a job in New York, your company is like the Thanks. first. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> No, I do. As far as doing that. like an amazing job and having experience, because what I've seen, it's very unique onto itself. Can you talk about like your experiences? Yeah, sure. The complications, challenges in New York. When you get a nice, large, flat roof that you could put four or 500 kilowatts of solar up back at, well, there's two issues. One, you're likely going to be on a part of the Con Edison network grid that might have intermittent load. So more recently, they've been better about allowing those interconnections with some upgrade costs that are manageable. Ten years ago, those were sort of showstoppers. You either had to put in reverse power relays and not export to the grid or just walk away from the project. And we put reverse power relays back then in systems that were 30 kilowatts, 40 kilowatts that have since been removed once the net metering law changed and allowed for commercial systems to participate. But that was one issue, the grid. So if you had a large roof, you were in, in an area where you probably didn't have good steady load in the grid and vice versa. If you had a roof that was great for Con Ed's purposes, it's probably a multifamily housing building where you might only get 30 or 40 kilowatts up there and it's a complicated installation. So it's a little bit of a catch-22 there. The other thing that you'll find on some of these nice warehouse or manufacturing buildings or these types of roofs is they're going to be repurposed potentially in the next sooner rather than later for the building owners or they would do it as soon as they could, probably some of them. But you find like we quoted a 1.5 megawatt site up in the Bronx. And it was, I've seen proposals that say two-year paybacks. And I'm like, yeah, right. This was a two-year payback. It's just ridiculous how oh, the economics that you could get on that scale with the New York City incentives. But they were, they're going to rebuild something there that's 12 stories in four years. They're not doing solar. I think I've heard that 60% of the rooftops in New York City are, are sort of the multifamily type of rooftop. And people are doing those projects. They're not easy. You have the electrical infrastructure in the basement, which could be ancient, usually is. So there's a lot of challenges in New York City from a physical perspective. But that being said, there's as much support here as anywhere at this point. I really think in many ways, Con Ed is one of the better utilities to work with going forward on some of these, certainly the city jobs. Maybe that wasn't always the case, but none of the utilities were really too keen on solar in the beginning. The building department is manageable. You've got CUNY, the City University of New York, you know, a, a big proponent of solar and trying to help us along the way. So New York, it's just different than every other sort of radio grid market out there. But it's our backyard, so we like doing projects here when we can. And our percentage of projects has increased quite a bit over the last few years. We worked with Onyx on the Stytown projects. It was, what, I think 52 rooftops, about 3.8 megawatts, and those are all about 12 to 14 stories. So 
and now are doing some stuff with Generate Capital on the, a bunch of schools for a project that they're, they hold a PPA with uh, DCAS and that's been going well. So we're getting back into New York, even though we've always been here. But traditionally, I would say 80% of our work's been over in New Jersey. New Jersey, yeah. yes. And New Jersey obviously has been a great market with the ESTREC program and then obviously high electricity costs, not as high as New York City. But yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And have you started looking at battery storage in projects or is it still too early for commercial industrial? Well, I feel it's too early for me as a kind of a solar guy. Everything looks like a solar project. And if it's not, I do something else. But there's certainly large storage projects going on in the city. I don't follow it quite as closely as I was a year or two ago. But you're seeing those sort of ahead of the meter or just non-specific to solar at all. We put up a one megawatt project for Conant Solutions in the Brooklyn Navy Yard. And they wanted to put as part of the system, they want to back up the cameras on the data acquisition system with like one seven point whatever it was to KW storage inverter. It was the process of even figuring out if they, we were going to do the storage, that the battery system was so painful that I talked them out of. And there today there sits a bunch of Solar Edge 20 kW inverters, the grid ties, and one 7.2 kW inverter that's ready for batteries if anybody wants to uh, <laughs> do that. But I understand the concern with New York City and the hazards that they don't want to encounter. But there again, on the policy level, I think it's a huge push for storage and is a huge opportunity. Opportunity. In reality, on a day-to-day right now, I think we're more sitting back and waiting or there's a real opportunity. I'll turn it over to a battery person and, and yes. let them work side by side. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I don't know if everyone really knows, but really in New York, it's difficult with the lithium-ion technology with fire safety rules that it's extremely challenging to at this point until like the fire code changes. So that was one of the reasons why I mentioned that. And I wasn't at the seminar, but I've heard that this <laughs> a couple of times where the first slide that a DLB official had put up was a skateboard on fire. It was one of those like lithium ion scooter things. And, and the whole industry is like, whoa, that's not. <laughs> I, I understand both sides of, of the fence there. And, and I've been on the bleeding edge of solar. I'd been on it for enough years that I'll, I'll let somebody else pioneer the, the battery storage in the city. But yeah, I think it's the holy grail, right? It's It gets rid of all the those, the network grid issues or the backfeeding issues. or And even in New Jersey, you're starting to see certain circuits filling up where you're limited to what you can put in or you're certainly having to pay for a smart meter on just about everything now, anything over 500 kWAC, I think it is. Yes. And again, the Hearts has got a, a dense portfolio there in, in section of Secaucus. And yeah, we have to work around the first thing I look at these days is a PSE&G solar ready map to, to make sure we don't waste time moving forward past that if it's showing yellow or red there. Yeah, then it doesn't make any sense to move forward. That may. We did have a system for them, which actually is dynamically controlling the inverters. So it's a SCADA system that we used. You also have the reverse power relay that's, that's a dead stop, sort of, if you're exporting more than 200 kW. But then we dialed in the SCADA to sort of limit the uh, output of the SMA inverters when it's approaching 200 kW. So you learn a lot in the industry and as things grow, at least I do. I mean, someone like my buddy Steve Schward might, uh, <laughs> he knew all that stuff before he got into solar, but these are things I learned along the way. Yeah, it, it's an interesting industry as we move along from a policy and technical aspect. 
Hi, this is Benoit, your host of the Solar Maverick Podcast. I would like to thank Schwerd Consulting for being the sponsor for this episode. Schwerd Consulting is a leading solar consulting firm dedicated to design, engineering, and owner's representation in all areas of solar photics for the commercial, industrial, and utility markets. At Schwerd Consulting, they like to say, we know solar, we don't just do solar. What sets them apart is their 100% focus on solar and understanding the business of their clients. In its five years of business, Schwerd Consulting has provided services for approximately 450 megawatts of PV across over 330 sites and 15 states plus the Caribbean. That total includes 300 megawatts of completed designs and engineering and 150 megawatts of consulting and owner rep services. Let Schwerd Consulting take the burden off you and bring ease and expertise in all areas of engineering and design or help you navigate the technical world of solar. If you're interested in learning more about Schwerd Consulting, you can call at 215-219-6718 or email at admin at schwerdconsulting.com. Schwerd Consulting website is www.schwerdconsulting.com. We'll also have this information as well in the notes of the podcast. Steve Schwerd, who's the owner of Schwerd Consulting, was interviewed on episode 17 and 48 of the Solar Maverick podcast and also episode 42, which was a panel discussion on how solar technology is changing the world. Thank you to Schwerd Consulting for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. As we mentioned before in the podcast, you've been in the industry for now, I guess, almost over 20 years. What trends or what things are you seeing that are exciting for you? And based on your experience, I mean, it would be great to get your perspective because you've been in the industry for a very long time. Like what gets you excited about what's happening in the industry? Yeah. The funny thing that what gets me excited these days is the fact that it's getting less exciting is the whole long tail thing I think is coming to where we talked about this earlier. When these programs first came online, you might have New Jersey's Esterick program was really lucrative and everybody ran to New Jersey and soaked <laughs> yeah. it all up and then everybody's sitting around with nothing to do. And then Connecticut's came up and everybody ruined that program. And then it was Massachusetts and New York and all these states were trying to figure out what not to do. I feel at least, and it just seems to me like you don't have at least regional contractors running around to the different states trying to figure out where the next market is. They're either able to operate in all those states or they kind of stay close to home. I think that's an interesting development for the industry. I feel like we have an O&M division now. It's when you first put up your few systems and then you get your first call, uh, call back, you're like, oh, we need an operations and maintenance department, <laughs> which was me for a while. And then it was a smarter person that was, you know, an engineer that we had. But now it's six people full-time maintaining systems that we've installed and maintaining systems that we haven't installed. And Steve Sword mentioned this, and he's pretty good at keeping his ear to the ground in the industry. But he felt like in a, in a few years, that part of the business is going to be equal to new installation work, which is phenomenal to think about. It's going to turn into a service industry. In general, from my perspective, going forward, like when I got into the industry, there was no industry. There was a few guys, thankfully, like people like Lyle Rawlings or Rick Brook, they'd have projects and let us work on them. And we would learn along with their projects or we might get a sale and they would come and help us design and build those things. So I didn't really have, and I was going to ask you this question. Sure. I didn't have a fixed sort of business plan when I got into it because I didn't know what we were going to do. We just kind of happy going out and getting on the roofs. But I think if I got into the industry now, 
you do need a fix. You do need a, a more intense business plan because the industry sort of specialized more. You know what you're getting into. Back then it was sort of, let's see where this thing leads. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. You being an entrepreneur yourself, when you start a business, do you try to stick to a business plan or do you kind of go with the flow or what do you do? <laughs> That's a great question. I think initially, like I came up with a very preliminary high level business plan. And then I would basically do what I said in the business plan and then see what the response and results were. And then based on the response and results, I would basically adjust the business plan to, for me, it's like, where can I add like the most value to my clients? And then really working from there. And then once you go out and talk to new clients and see what their response is, then I would basically adjust it accordingly. And you're right. There's like so much opportunity and so many different things now in the industry that you could focus on. It could get be overwhelming just because there's just so many different things that you could work on. So I've been trying to actually hone on a few things that I believe adds like the most value to the customer and then focus on that and try to not. It was interesting to me to hear your comments about how you're just focused really on, on solar and rooftop and commercial industrial. So in certain states as well, it seems like predominantly like the Northeast and Mid-Atlantic. So it seems like there's a very defined purpose. So because plans are made to be changed. I mean, you could theoretically come up with something and then. Yeah. I mean, that, that's one thing I like about the industry is it just it's growing and evolving. And I couldn't again, back to the original job, I had the bond brokerage thing. It was fun, but it was the same thing every day. I couldn't see myself doing it for 20 years. But uh, this industry is just sort of new technology is exciting. Even though we've actually pulled some modules off roofs, my partner Chris Moustakis uh, was one of the first systems that we did on his mother's house out on Long Island. And we pulled those old Astro Power 75 watt modules off of there a couple of years ago and tested them. They were still over 90% of their original rated output. So wow, that, that's amazing. That was very cool. But at the same time, if you bought that same footprint of module today, it'd be what, 150 watts or something. Yeah. It's, it's amazing that the efficiency has come along the way it has. But it's heartening to see like these products that were made 15, 20 years ago, I don't think they were anywhere near the quality as they are now. And they were doing what they were supposed to do. It's an exciting business. Going back, the first course I took was up in Springfield, Massachusetts. It's like two days before a renewable energy conference up there. And I did the math in the, the two days and was interested in that a little bit, but walked out and they were about to start the conference and somebody had set up a fan, a booth with a box fan as the ceiling and a solar panel that was directly connected to it. And that was when I looked up and the first saw kind of like a direct, okay, that thing is making that fan, fan spin. And a cloud came by and the fan slowed down and it kept moving and it, you know, oh, and it wow. sped back up. And right there, I was like, that's the simplest thing. I can understand that. That's the simplest thing I've ever seen. And even though this industry is so nascent, it's just like that this thing is going to happen. There's no doubt. I guess I did have some doubts, like when there was a conversation whether the fuel cells were going to win out or the solar panels were going to win out. But solar has definitely won the battle. Its ability to be generate electricity on site at peak times versus when to being off-peak in upstate New York or something. It's got some real tangible value to it. And the simplicity of it was always something I thought everybody would be able to understand. 
Yeah, that is amazing. One of the things I wanted too to get your perspective is the podcast is about solar and entrepreneurship. Can you talk about like what you've learned from being an entrepreneur and maybe suggestions for people who are looking to get into entrepreneurship? Because you've been at it for 20 years, which is amazing. And I can't imagine like the lessons that you've learned from it. And you've talked about some of it actually through the conversation, but be. Yeah, no, I think I don't feel like I can advise people. I've never felt like, because everybody's going to approach the day a different way. But I'm a Pisces. I like to swim around things rather than through them. And, and this kind Kind of industry that's sort of grown as, as I've grown, I feel like has been good for me. I don't get stuck in a rut. I think as far as being an entrepreneur, I had to be ready to eat pizza every day of the week for four years and five years and stick to it. I always felt like I want to be there when we got that big boulder pushed up to the top of the hill and, and got it rolling down the other side. But there are definitely times when I felt like I wasn't going to make that we would, when you get there and the industry gets sophisticated, you get swamped by these great contractors that were not in solar before, but all of a sudden they can just jump right into it with customer base and yes. know-how. I think you just have to be tough-minded. If I were to try to get into this industry today, again, if you're trying to tackle the residential market, you either, I think you need to segment and specialize. And that's what we're seeing, whether it's engineering or development, installation work, all financing. We get a call every three days now from private equity fund or not necessarily the banks because they want to see larger deals, but everybody is trying to throw their money into this industry. So that's been a huge change. And I think if I had any advice for someone wanting to get in the industry today, I would tell them to make sure that they wanted to do the sort of specific tasks that they were going to interview for, whether that be engineering, design, or outreach or whatever. It's really back in the day, we had to do all of it. We had to sell it, draw it, build it, maintain it. But now it's a completely different model. And at least in the city, it is. I would just say, be ready to love the solar industry, but also be very interested in, in what application you want to involve yourself with. That's a great perspective. I mean, I think that and then the solar trends that you mentioned, I think are really key and insightful points based on your experience. It's interesting in the pre-interview, we talked about how you actually back a while ago actually was talking to President Trump about solar. And I thought that was interesting that you brought it up. Can you talk about that experience? Yeah. Then I've, <laughs> whenever I've told this story, I've realized that the punchline or the endings, not it's sort of a letdown. So I'll just tell you right away. He, he ended up not pursuing a project, but the way we met was through an architect out in Bedminster, New Jersey, who I met this architect doing a project out at the Willow School out there many, many years ago. And he was a great guy, quirky guy. And he happened to be working on the golf cart barn for the Bedminster Trump National course. He called me and he said, hey, if, if someone from Donald Trump's office calls you, it's about this. I've been trying to get him to do solar on his golf cart barn. So he might call you. I don't know. And I forgot all about it. And two or three weeks later, someone called and said they were, this is Twee from Donald Trump's office. Would You know, he'd like to speak to you about solar. And I said, sure. So we got on and talked about just high level stuff for a few minutes. And then he invited me into his office to talk a little more. And, it, and of course I went, it just became this surreal. I walked in and he was on the phone barking with somebody. And as soon as he hung up, the first thing he said to me was, Somehow I thought you'd be younger. <laughs> I was like, okay, I'm sorry. We talked for well over an hour. He kept getting other people on the phone, like his builder out in 
in Long Island. He was going to do it at the Taj Mahal. And funny enough, like Michael Cohen was his sort of guy at the time, and he was running in and out talking about other things. And by the end of it, Donald Trump said, you know, Michael, I'm a big solar guy. We're going to do solar at the golf course. We're going to do it at the Taj and all this. And, and I was floated out on cloud nine. But over the course of a few weeks, we actually did get his signature on a term sheet. Couldn't use the tax credits. For I think that was back when they had AMT issues, so I won't go into that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but in the end, I think when Cohen saw the 25-page uh, PPA, they sort of killed it right there. And it's not no one's to blame. We were actually going to give them free electricity, but it still was only about twelve or so thousand dollars a year. But yeah, that's what happens on those PPA deals. It's hard to sometimes get them across the finish line because you have somebody with a core business that doesn't want to spend all their time dealing with a leaseholder on their property and minimal savings. So I think he wants to be buried out there as well. So there's something about the Bedminster course <laughs> that he takes very personally. He doesn't yeah. want people in there, I think, uh, for the long term. But I enjoyed th this company. He, he was a funny guy. He's someone that when you're sitting face to face with, he's, he's interesting. I didn't realize that the Time Magazine cover on my, to my right was fake, but, <laughs> but that's just him, I guess. Yes. Oh, that's an amazing story. And it's interesting when you were talking about the story about how sometimes PPA financing is actually challenging, especially when the building owner is not using the electricity. And there's, as you mentioned, there's like minimal savings. How have you been able to have those conversations to convince someone when they're not directly paying for the electricity? It's interesting because we do a lot of direct sales stuff. And, and again, when you say direct, you mean cash? Or well, invest? cash, you know, I don't want to speak for my customer, but we do EPC for parts and then they own the building and they have the tenant and they own the solar and they, they handle all of that. Right. So it's still a PPA, but to me, it looks like a cash sale. As far as these sort of a special entity who embraced solar and looked at it as a business and got behind it and I don't think they want to deal with a lessee on their rooftops who's trying to sell electricity to a tenant who's got a seven-year lease. Yes. And that's a big issue in these smaller deals. Thankfully, in New York, you get a lot of companies that own their own buildings. So it's sort of you're dealing with the, it's a still a one-off project, but that's kind of what we see here. I don't have that answer. Like you either have to be someone flexible and with your own financing and want able to take the risk of a tenant moving out and having a dark space there. I don't see any other way you have to involve that landlord somehow, maybe in some ownership structure. But yeah, well, that's why we don't do a lot of PPAs in that 100 kW range. We do own a few projects ourselves, but those were sort of NYSERDA grant projects, federal grant projects, which covered our outlay and it wasn't a whole lot of risk to us going forward. But it's still one of those aspects of CNI that really holds that sector back. Yeah, definitely. And also, too, if third party financing as well for below 500 kilowatts, there's a niche between 50 to 500. It's definitely a lot more challenging to get financing for those projects. Sure. There's some groups out there doing that. We work with um, SunWealth. I don't know if you know John Abe. Yeah, they, they'll take on those projects and happy to have them. Yeah, I think it really comes down to your original point. Like, how do you deal when it's a tenant and a building owner and there's really not a lot of meat on the bone for anybody? Unless they have some other motive to do solar, it kind of falls apart. Falls apart. Yeah. Yes, that makes sense. 
Well, this has been an amazing interview, David. If people want to learn more about solar energy systems or to get in contact with you, what's the best way for them to reach out? Sure. And thank you. Before I go, I wanted to ask you what your favorite part of the industry is. I know you've been all around the, you know, the industry over the years and have your own thing now. What, What do you sort of, what do you enjoy the most other than the podcast, of course? Yeah. I mean, the podcast has been an amazing experience. What I love about the industry is kind of what you talked about it. Everything is just changing so quickly and there's no like typical day and it's growing so exponentially and it's becoming more mature. It's still, I think, very early stages in the solar industry. For obviously someone who's been in the industry for 20 years, it's amazing to see the growth, even for me to be in the industry for 10 years. What's really like exciting me is just the production factors of these projects, how like the panels are just getting a lot more efficient. The pricing seems to keep going down. The new technology that's coming, bifacials panels are becoming a lot more popular. I know we talked a little bit about storage, but I feel like eventually it's going to be economical and taking the intermittent form of power, you're able to use it at any time. I just feel like that's really a game changer. And I think there's a lot of exciting things ahead and it's just amazing to me. It's I'm constantly learning. Everything is just changing so quickly that I feel like I'm constantly adjusting and learning and trying to I learned so much from listening to these interviews and that learned a lot from listening to David, your experience and your perspective. So. Uh, thank you. Yeah, that's great. It sounds like you're, you've got the perfect personality for solar. So uh, hang on and, and enjoy. <laughs> but my, so our website, it's solaresystems.com. And I love telling this to people when I'm on the phone, but it's, we should have come up with a smaller uh, website name, but yeah, it's solar, the letter E systems is plural.com. I think if you just go there, info, that comes direct to me and I will answer all emails. Great. Well, and we'll also have the email as well in the notes of the podcast. And thank you again, David. This was an amazing interview. Thank you for your time today. Awesome. Thanks. Great, great being here. Thanks for listening to the Solar Maverick Podcast. The Solar Maverick Podcast is brought to you by Renew Energy. We're a solar development and consulting firm. If you believe that this podcast is adding value to you, please give us a five-star review and share with those that you think could benefit from this information. Please email all questions, suggestions, and feedback to info at renewenergy.com. That's I-N-F-O at reneuenergy.com. The Solar Maverick Podcast is produced by Podcast Laundry and executive produced by Benoit Thangin and Kevin Y. Brown. 